The Home Show with Sinead Ryan. This is News Talk. Welcome along to the show this morning. I'm Sinead Ryan. Coming up today, colour, balance and bees. I'll be talking to the sustainable gardener, Peter Dowdle, on how to plan your garden this summer. We'll find out why Clontarf residents are up in arms at the demolition of an abandoned lifeguard shelter. Scorching sunshine means one thing, garden parties. We'll have the must-have essentials for your stylish summer soiree. And we talk gorgeous gutters and gargoyles and ask, whatever happened to the barometers that used to hang in every Irish home? If you'd like to get involved in the show today, you can text us here at The Home Show at 53106 for 30 cent or email us at thehomeshow at newstalk.com. You'll find me on Twitter at Sinead underscore Ryan. Remember, you can listen back or listen live to the show and our podcasts on the Newstalk app powered by GoLoud. Well, how is everybody feeling today? I must say I'm fairly happy. My digital COVID cert dropped during the week. The weather is beautiful. And despite the worrying case numbers with COVID, it looks like we are doing more than most to keep a lid on the consequences this summer. A lot more than the UK at any rate. Or are we? Now, some of you of a certain age like me will remember a TV programme called Where in the World. It was hosted by Theresa Lowe and contestants battled it out for really, really mediocre prizes. Well, it got me thinking about where in the world, or at least in Europe, I'll be travelling to first. I have to say, I can't wait. I'm torn between returning to Italy or France, two of my favourite places, or visiting Croatia, which I've never been to, but it's on my bucket list since 2019. But with such lovely weather around at the moment, maybe a staycation to Connemara, Killarney, Donegal is just as good. Let me know your recommendations, if you would. I'd love to get a bit of inspo. And while we're talking about the weather, later on in the show, we're going to be talking barometers. Now, did you have one hanging in your hall like I did? What happened to it? Where have they all gone now that we use weather apps? And are the weather apps any better, by the way? Well, if you have one, I'd love to see a photo of it. So do stay with us. Uh, And you're very welcome along today. Now, new research from Board Gosh Energy shows that 46% of us are planning to make changes to our homes this year and upgrading the garden and outdoor spaces comes top of the list. Not only that, but people are looking to make their gardens more sustainable. Well, to inspire householders, Board Gosh Energy has teamed up with a panel of well-known home experts, Home of the Year judge Susie McAdam, who we've had on the show, former quantity surveyor on Room to Improve, Lisa O'Brien, who will host a virtual event called Imagine a Better Way at Home next Wednesday at 12, and TV gardener Peter Dowdle, who I'm delighted to say joins me this morning. Peter, you're very welcome along to The Home Show. Thanks, Jay. Good morning. Good morning. Now, uh, before we get down into how to make our gardens more sustainable, talk to me a little bit about whether you think lockdown has made us all fall in love with our gardens and outdoor spaces a little bit more. The biggest positive, if not the only positive, I suppose, from the last nearly 18 months now has been our our deeper appreciation for, and I use this term very deliberately, the great outdoors. Uh, We've we've all fallen in love with and, you know, maybe perhaps pre-March 2020, we're all too busy running this way and that to to appreciate what we have. Uh, My heart goes out to those who don't have access to green space. 
be that their own green space or, or public green space. But mm. those of us who have been lucky to have a garden and some bit of green space outside, and I, I again deliberately, I choose my words deliberately, Sinead, because a garden doesn't have to be a manicured landscape garden, just a green lawn or just an area of wildflowers outside is a garden, just somewhere mm. that you can go out. And I think, yeah, we have all fallen in love with it and we have all seen the potential of it, uh, in many cases unrealised. So talk to me about colour, because at this time of the year, now I know myself, I have azaleas out, the roses are kind of nearly gone now, the rhodo is between flowering. And, you know, I find that a lot of the flowers, they all burst out at the same time and they're absolutely beautiful. And then they're gone. Is there a way that you can ensure nearly round the year colour? Well, yes. Let's let's substitute the word colour for interest today, right? Okay, all right. Uh, and the re- the reason I say that is because yeah, you, you the garden is full of flower colour. It's very easy to get it full of colour if you like uh, between kind of March, let's say, and August, September. You have the spring bulbs, you have the summer perennials, you have the rhodos and roses that you mentioned. You have lots and lots of colour at this time of year. But before you even get into colour in the garden, and I won't spend too long on this today because I'm conscious of time, but before you even get into colour, when you're designing a garden, you, you need to take a few steps back. So you're looking at the overall structure and shape of the garden. And the first thing you do is start, start to create a bit of balance by, by using focal points. And the focal point can be a plant or it can be something else. But you want to create a few focal points within the garden to give you that sense of balance. Because it, there's very often a very fine line between a nice informal garden and chaos, right? Which is just a collection of <laughs> Don't I know things. it. <laughs> yeah, we all do. <laughs> Uh, it can be plants just plonked here and there. So you do need to start with by creating a bit of balance through the garden. And then again, just before you get to colour, you look at things like texture. So texture isn't just a word for, for garden designer types like myself to pretend that we know what we're talking about. Texture is a very definite feature of, of any garden. Uh, so you have, if you can imagine, a very dense shrub, let's say like your rhododendron. Uh, that's a very, very dense shrub. It's not going to offer any movement or swaying in the wind or anything mm. like that. It's nearly a punctuation mark in the garden. And then if you look at a contrasting texture, something like an ornamental grass, that will always work well with the, the rhododendron. Uh, and that's that's why I use the word interest. That will be just as pretty during December as it will in June. And then okay. if you introduce colour, you could have, you know, a variegated foliage, a plant with variegated foliage, which is not just green. It might, might be shades of purple or shades of cream in it. Uh, so that can give you colour through foliage 12 months of the year. Yeah, but um, could, you could also have that, I suppose, in different places in the garden. I mean, you don't need something very big, but but I love that idea of it's not just about the colour, it's about the movement and the texture. So having something very, very solid and then beside it maybe something that's moving in the breeze or kind of a different colours, that idea of variegated leaves is lovely. So would you bunch then bits together depending on the time of year and, and maybe having them going around your garden clockwise nearly? Well, I mightn't go quite that rigidly, but yes, you're on the right track in that I would identify some kind of key plant combinations for a garden. So one focal point might be, you know, a, a, a tree. And depending on the size of your garden, that could be a small tree or a large tree, depending on the size. And then around that tree, I would frame it by by putting three or five of, of the same thing underneath it. I am speaking with Peter Dowdell, expert gardener here on the Home Show on News Talk this morning. Now, Peter, in terms of, I know one of the things that you're very interested in and and lots of, of people are now is the whole area of composting and garden waste and all of that kind of stuff. Now, uh, uh, people are a little bit worried about maybe the smell or attracting 
unwanted guests as a result of it. How do you get around that or, or are those fears grounded? Yes and no. It depends on, on how you compass. So we all 100% depend on this this magical 6 or 12 inches of, of energy which covers the whole planet and we refer to as soil. We, we, we rely on it for absolutely everything, Sinead. Uh, our food, our medicines, everything comes from the soil. So we need to give back to the soil. So instead of taking compostable material uh, away and, and just dumping it as landfill, we, we absolutely should compost it in our own gardens and put it back into the soil and replenish our gardens and use it. So in terms then of, of smells and encouraging our nasties and you know rodents and things like that, they are, they are absolutely legitimate que- uh, queries, uh, but they can all be overcome. So like, I don't know how it ever came to be that this upturned plastic bin got sold and marketed throughout the world as a compost bin because they're useless. The whole the whole process of composting depends on you turning it. Uh, so the, the the heat of the compost, the heat of the rotting oh, material, right. if you like, uh, it's it warms up in the centre. So obviously, what's on the outside of the, of the pile gets cold. So you need to turn it into the centre. So you're constantly agitating it. So you're you talking get, about a, you you those barrel ones that you can you turn around. Are they better then? A hundred times better, a million times better. Okay. So you can get, yes, they're, they're compost tumblers uh, and they're very, very easy to turn because as I say, you know, the whole thing depends on, the whole composting process depends on, among other things, but it depends on being agitated. It's impossible to agitate an upturned bin, uh, but however, if you have a compost tumbler, even for a small home, it's very simple. It's, uh, for anybody who doesn't know it, it's like a, what I call the National Lottery draw drum, if you can imagine that, just tumbling <laughs> around. Um, right. uh, <laughs> and and you get your prize for the new plants you're going to get you're, next. You're guaranteed a prize with this draw drum, yeah. <laughs> okay, well, let's not bash the metaphor today. Okay, <laughs> now, uh, of course, what is really important and one of the things I want to talk to you today uh, is all about the bees. And I, uh, my local park has now put up the, the kind of bee happy zones all around the place. And I must say, it's just lovely to see those bright open flowers, nearly wild flowers there. So if we wanted our gardens to be bee friendly, what kind of plants and flowers are we looking at that they like the best? Board Gas have done this research into people's homes and up to half of people have said that they want to improve their garden space. Mm. And I think there's there's about 20% or more have said that they're concerned, sorry, it's over 50% of them have said they're concerned about the, maybe the cost of, of garden makeovers and home makeovers and things like that. Mm. And the reason I bring that up now is because a garden makeover can be free. Bees are free. They're there and they, they give us everything we need. They pollinate everything. It's absolutely essential that, we, that, that, that there's over 99 species of bees. Uh, or, I tell you, there's over 90. I think it's 99 species of bees in Ireland and many of them uh, are under threat at the moment. Their numbers are under threat for a variety of reasons. So what we can do to help in our garden is just be conscious of, obviously you can let areas of your garden go wild so they become you know, species-rich uh, meadow areas for bees to feed on and also for the solitary bees and things to overwinter in, right? So mm-hmm. just let areas go wild. But if that doesn't suit you, if you don't want your whole garden to be wild, just be careful when you're in the garden centre, the plants you're buying. Uh, try not to look Try not to get intensively hybridized plants because they may as well be useless to the bees. So get very, very mm. simple plants, sunflowers, single dahlias, things where the, the bees can very easily get the pollen and feed on okay. uh, and the nectar. So okay. that's what we should be looking at. Good. Simple, so simple flowers. Simple flowers and wide open leaves. And a lot of those can grow. My sunflowers are being very stubborn at the moment. They haven't decided to pop their heads out yet, but I'm sure they will in time. But we haven't had much sun. 
<laughs> well, now, hopefully this weekend we'll see, yeah. the, see the change on that. Okay. Now, Peter, I know that you're a very strong advocate for gardening and green spaces being the key to helping people deal with mental health problems uh, in a kind of a holistic way. Talk to me about that. I can't tell you, Sinead, how many times I have gone out to the garden uh, and I've said to her, I promise I'll be back inside in about 20 minutes. I just have a quick job to do. And then before you know it, uh, and I can see people all over the country listening to this, nodding their head in agreement. Before you know it, three and four hours have passed, and you're literally going, where did that time go? Mm. There's great therapy to be had in the garden, Sinead. Just by being out there touching the soil, uh, there's, there's numerous studies that have been done over the years internationally to back this up, the mental health benefits of, of being in the garden. I don't care if you want to call it connecting with God, connecting with the universe. Is it because we're electrically charged beings and the soil is earthing us? I don't know the science. I don't know the reasons. But the benefits, mental health benefits of working in the garden is, is are phenomenal. But it goes much more than that. It goes much beyond that. If you, if you look at like up to now, in many ways, gardening is perhaps dismissed as too strong a word, but it's kind of it's, it's, it's pigeonholed as, you know, a, a nice harmless pastime, a genteel pastime, particularly for those of us uh, on the wrong side of 40, if you like. But <laughs> it, it shouldn't be dismissed because, as I said at the start, as we were talking about at the start, we've all developed a much deeper appreciation of, of our green environment. And if you look at all the problems facing modern day society, mental health problems, physical health problems, species extinction, biodiversity loss, climate change, well, the solution, or if not the solutions for all of these problems, certainly part of the solution to all of these problems is to be found in our gardens. It can it can help trees will will sequester or will will take carbon out of the atmosphere and it'll they, they'll keep them in their wood and bring it into the soil. Uh, plants obviously the right plants will help bees and the more species we have growing in the garden, we're helping biodiversity. Uh, we've lost the plot in many ways over the last. 20, 30, 40 years, and the more urbanised we become as society, you know, the higher we see, the higher rates in mental health problems, the higher the rates in obesity, things like this, the more connected we are to nature and the green environment, the healthier we all are as a population. Now, talk to me a little bit, uh, just before you go, about the Imagine a Better Way at Home event um, that is being done in conjunction with Board Gosh Energy. Yeah, well, as I mentioned, the, the Board Gas research that was done uh, recently during June to to, to which has shown that over 50% of people want to reimagine their garden, if you like, and they, they, they want to look at a more sustainable way of living. And Boardgas is supporting this. And in the first instance, yeah, as you say, we're, we're joining this Imagine a Better Way at Home virtual event on the 21st of July, whereas myself, Susie McAdam and Lisa O'Brien will be giving tips uh, and discussing sustainable ways of, of developing the home, making over the home. I'm looking forward to learning a lot from Susie and Lisa, and I'll be throwing in my tuppence worth about a couple of sustainable tips uh, of what you can do in the garden. So you can't use chemicals, but then what do we do to control things like slug? You know, real sure. nitty-gritty stuff. How do we have successful gardens without using chemicals? Okay. And believe me, there are ways. And where can people get tickets for that, Peter? People can get tickets for that at... Uh, imagine a better way dot eventbrite dot ie. Well, thank you so much, Peter Dowdle, expert gardener and TV presenter for all of that garden inspiration. Thanks very much, Sinead. A pleasure.
Now, you might remember a few weeks ago, I spoke of the demolition of Kuragaro House in my beloved Limerick City. Well, this week, Dubliners were up in arms about the demolition of a lifeguard shelter in Clontarf. Why was this abandoned structure so important to Irish architecture and why are we seeing so much demolition taking place around our towns and cities? Well, to explain all, I'm joined by Emma Galise, architectural historian. Uh, Good morning, Emma. Welcome back to The Home Show. Hi, Steve. Now, tell me a little bit about the structure that was demolished in Clontarf uh, during the week. These are part of a set on Bull Island and people are probably familiar with the simpler hooded ones uh, along the, the walk route along Clontarf. And on Bull Island, there's actually more sophisticated ones. And so they're made out of precast concrete. Um, some of them are painted, some of them are left unpainted. And most of them are bathing shelters and there's a couple of ornamental seating shelters But a little bit further back, and the one that everyone's up in arms about is the lifeguard shelter. So imagine you're looking straight on at it and you have your little room with a door, a porthole window on your side. It had a flat roof on it. So imagine like the the outstretched wings of a bird in flight. Underneath each wing was concrete benches curving around the walls. So it was very simple, but the, the repeat of the curve on the roof and the plinth that it sat on made it beautiful, very simple. And it was just giving back a public free immunity to people mm. um, as as well as the lifeguard watching everyone in the bathing shelters um, swimming in the sea. Now, Emma, there seems to be some confusion about who designed those buildings. What is your understanding of it? Well, I'm going by the Bible, which is uh, a book edited by Dr. Ellen Rowley, More Than Concrete Blocks, Volume 1. And it was published by Dublin City Council by the Heritage Department. Ellen says that this suite of buildings were built in the early 30s. Well, they were designed in the early 30s. And as an architectural historian would tell you, uh, there was a delay between the design and the completion because this was the emergency in Ireland. There was a lack of building materials. Now, nobody can definitively say this was Herbert that designed these. This is but Herbert, himself. Herbert Sims, the Dublin Her- Corporation Sims. architect. Was, yes, so he was the housing architect for Dublin. So it was either himself or his team that he's working over. So he would have the final say. So no one can 100% say it was Herbert, but it makes sense logically that if all these bathing shelters were being built there, that you would put a lifeguard shelter to keep an eye on everyone bathing there. Okay, we asked somebody from uh, Dublin City Council to come on to the show, but they weren't uh, available. They did send us in a statement. So let me just kind of let listeners know what their sense of it was. They say the shelter in question was constructed by Dublin Corporation around 1958. It wasn't designed by the architect Herbert Sims and wasn't a protected structure. Unfortunately, the shelter had been a focus for nighttime congregation in the heart of the nature reserve with persistent littering uh, and there was evidence of fires uh, being set as well. It was decided, therefore, they said, to remove the shelter uh, and the NPWS were consulted about the works. They considered them appropriate for the management of the European site as an antisocial night time gatherings pose risk of fire. Uh, thank you, Dublin City Council. Would have been better if you'd, if you'd uh, maybe come on the show and had a chat about that. Now, talk to me about Herbert Sims. So Herbert Sims, he was born in 1898 in London and he came over briefly to Dublin um, to work in the architects department in the corporation. So as you all know, Dublin was full of slums in the 1930s and there was a real political will to, to give everyone adequate housing. And in his 16 years in office, he built 17,000 homes in Dublin City and in the suburbs. So the ones we'd all be familiar with is um, uh, Chancery House, 
Pierce House in Townsend Street, Mar Marble Lane. Um, he did housing in Crumlin, in Cabra. And he had a tragic end, Emma. He did. Um, so when people say somebody gave their life for Dublin City, th this, uh, he, this is the epitome of it. So in September 1948, at age 50, uh, he came to a tragic end. He, he threw himself in front of a train near Colkey Bridge. And oddly, a suicide note was reprinted in the Irish Press newspaper. And I'll just read out the last couple of lines. I cannot stand it any longer. My brain is too tired to work anymore. It has not had a rest for 20 years, except when I am in heavy sleep. It is always on the go like a dynamo. And still the work is being piled onto me. Wow, <laughs> these, these, isn't that so powerful these... and tragic and sad? Yeah. All right. Well, look, let us know what you think out there. Are you a Clontarf residence? Do you walk out by the Bull Wall? Have you always admired those uh, shelters and, and lifeguard stations? Uh, I'd love to hear your views. Text us here at 53106 or email us at com. For now, Emma Gleese, architectural historian, thank you so much for joining us here on The Home Show. Thank you. Now, with temperatures hitting a whopping 24 degrees this weekend, many people will be looking forward to hosting a stylish summer soiree in their own back garden. So what are the must-have items that you'll need to create that perfect garden party? Well, here to share her ultimate guide to outdoor dining essentials is Maria Reedy, founder of MariaReedyEvents.com and SignatureEditions.ie. Good morning, Maria. You're very welcome along to The Home Show. Thank you very much for having me, Sinead. So what's your first kind of sense of treating your garden like an extra room outdoors when you're when you're doing something maybe even in the evening time what i would say is you know establish the area that you have and determine where everything goes so you know if you have a garden out the back of your house just decide where it is you're going to put the table how you're entertaining so are you are guests going to be having just drinks or are they going to be um dining and i think just to make the area as comfortable as possible so sometimes I will have clients that will say to me, well, I don't have outdoor furniture. And as we all know, it's very difficult to get outdoor furniture in Ireland at the moment. There's long lead times. So what I would say to those clients, if the weather is good, just move some of your indoor furniture out. But obviously making sure that you put it away that night or, you know, yeah. it doesn't get damaged. And the other thing I would say is when we're dining indoors, you know, and we're having guests over, you always think about, you know, how comfortable are your guests going to be? What are the chairs like? And I think, you know, it's just important to bear that in mind when you're outdoors as well. So for outdoors, I would always suggest that you have, you know, it's Ireland. So have rain cover to hand, have throws. A fire pit is a great investment, I think, and you use it all year round. Things that I would do as the night is, you know, as the night is drawing in, like have some hot water bottles ready. Let's talk about the table itself, because this is your area of speciality, the whole area of tablescaping, yes. which is a word you brought to the home show, which I'd never heard of before <laughs> uh, the last time you were on. Uh, so <laughs> candles, glassware, runners, place settings. Talk to me all about that. So coloured glassware is a lovely item to have on the table because it automatically gives some colour. And, it's you know, it's real evokes, I think, summers in Portugal and Spain and places like that. So that's that's a great one. Um, I would always use a linen napkin. So even if you just have a plain, simple white linen napkin tied with a little bit of string or a bit of ribbon and just gives it a little bit, um, something a little bit different. Um, candles and tea light holders within um, glass holders or glass sleeves are a great one because, you know, a little breeze that comes won't blow them out and they look really, really good. Um, I would also maybe use a few citronella candles in the area near where you're dining to keep, you know, so that keeps the bugs away. Mm. It keeps the bugs away. 
Um, and then I just think use have fun with your your printed, you know, with your linen. So whether it's a placemat or a napkin or a tablecloth, you know, you can mix and match as much as possible. I think all the rules are out in terms of, you know, it's not formal dining. You're outdoors. It's meant to be light and yeah. fresh and summery. So I would just say use what you have. And sometimes, you know, if you don't have linen napkins at home, sometimes even brand new tea towels you know, wrapped nicely can, you know, can work for that okay. if, you, if you don't have access to, uh, what, to what linen. A, what a great idea. Now, I know you were saying, okay, all the rules are out the door and it's all very casual, use what you have. And I'm all a big fan of that. Uh, but it is sometimes nice if you want to make things a little bit formal to kind of have matching uh, plates and matching settings and all that. One of the things that I did uh, see on your website were beautiful uh, plates in the shape of artichokes and they all That's fit right. into one another. I thought that was absolutely beautiful, not least because it's practical. So the top plate is your little starter. They all get whipped away and underneath it, there's your main course plate. Um, it, it was a just a lovely idea. And it's a really unusual plate as well. It's, you know, it is in the shape of the artichoke and there's, a, there's nice colours in the greens and purples going through it. So it's a real statement. So even if you just, most people have a plain white tablecloth at home, Sinead. So even if you just use plain white tablecloth and you have plates like that, um, you know, it's automatically gives you that beautiful tablescape that lots of people are trying to create. All right, Maria Reedy, founder of Maria Reedy Events and sister brand signature rentals. Thank you very much for joining us again on The Home Show. Thank you so much, Sinead. I am delighted to say and welcome back to the prodigal daughter, <laughs> Roisin Murphy. The oh, Home Show Studio. so good to be back. I hate to say it, but I have missed you badly, Miss Ryan. It is so well, nice to be back. And that girl, whoever she was, having a clue who was, because I wasn't listening, of course, she just was brilliant. Absolutely brilliant. So I had to get back earlier than I'd anticipated. That was our Jennifer Sheehan. She was absolutely super. Yeah, and we super. were delighted to have her. And I'm sure it won't be the last that radio news talk and the home show we'll hear with Jennifer Sheehan but we are thrilled yeah. to have oh, our thank own you. Dr. Roisin back in the house to do all of your problem solving around the house and rescuing your homes and all of that now one of the things we're going to start with today is, is something that now listen I know that you're going to say this is lovely and this gorgeous item I do not get this right oh yeah I know what um, we're, about. we're talking about gutters and guttering now to me I don't notice gutters I don't see them actually it was the probably the first time I looked at my own uh, this morning just before I came in yes. here and they're just like gutters I yes mean, they're not that exciting obsessed like, obsessed like, have always been there was an architect called Glenn Murcutt in the 80s he was an Australian architect who designed a building uh, like a wave and in it he put a big funnel shaped stainless steel aluminium gutter and architects all over the world were suddenly going we're talking about rain for the first time ever since the French put gargoyles on Notre Dame that we were rain was being expressed okay now it went to the back of my head but I would always consciously design in either secret gutters where you'll have a little um, tile where when the rainwater falls down it's not going into a gutter it's actually going into a tile so you don't see any gutters at the end, edge of your building like I became it's a real obsession of mine partly because it rains so much in Ireland like yeah. it's you know it's like saying and I often think that we don't do enough with it like, I don't do anything. I mean, when I think of guttering, I just think of a white PVC thing which is in the front of my house and then I stop seeing it, really, because it's just... I don't want to think about yeah. it, really. I mean, I know the rain has to go somewhere. You're absolutely right. But... 
But I, I wonder whether people do care about the material or, or making it kind of artistic in, in any way, do well, they? I think that what has happened is, OK, I think the thing has been making them invisible for a long time, like what I was saying, where you conceal it on the edge of the ridge, right, and where all, or the valley and where all the guttering is gone away or there'll be a parapet up and the gutter is secreted down so you have none of this plastic paraphernalia on the building. But... With the kind, there's been a bit of a retro vibe going on with black steel windows. And with that, mm. the black pressed aluminium gutter is suddenly catching the eye on buildings okay. for the first time ever. Where there's ta- they're expressing rainwater detailing. They're no longer hiding. It's part of the architecture of these black windows and black gutters. That's where I've noticed it's come really back into... Accessorising gutters. Accessorising. <laughs> and you know the way you'd have a gutter or you'd have something on a building and... You know, the gutter, it hasn't been about gutters for the last 10 years. But then with these this black window architecture that's huge at mm, the moment mm. and looks like it's not dying, the black gutter has become huge. Does it matter what a gutter is made of? Now, I know they have to be sturdy because they have to be able to take the level of rain mm. that is coming down. Does it matter if it's PVC, if it's, if it's oh, some yeah. other type of plastic, if it's well, steel? Well, pa- PVC, nobody likes PVC. Nobody likes plastic. It's just part of the, mm. the you know the ecosystems of the world. Nobody really likes plastic. Cast iron is a beautiful material. You can, there's a place, a foundry down in Athai, which will literally cast anything. They've done all the guttering for Christchurch and you can go down there and get a fancy little bit of gutter with a picture or whatever you want with little gargoyles printed on it. Like guttering doesn't have to be black PVC. It's just like it became black PVC because it was lightweight. It was easy to transport. Yeah, and like everything else, we just Cheap. started making things out of plastic. Yeah. I love the idea of gargoyles and I've never thought of them yeah. in the context of guttering actually because I didn't think they ever served a purpose other than decorative. Listen, I've, I was, I've always liked a thing called a chain uh, rain pipe okay it's a rain a chain rain chain okay and you'll see them say on the Met Office or on some of Liam McCormick's another Irish architect famous church buildings where the rainwater comes down the building and it goes down a chain You, if you're past the Met Office or any of near right. Liam McCormick's building he always expressed his rain so that's where I suddenly started looking at it partly because I, I, I couldn't does, get How does that work? So it just concentrates the rain There's down special, on, like, yeah, the science of it. Yeah, the okay. science of it is that it comes down, it goes into a kind of a funnel shape and then discharges onto the chain. So that's right. the rain chain. But that comes also from what we would, uh, it's a modern gargoyle rain system because what a gargoyle used to do was discharge the water off buildings, away from stone, the stone face of the buildings. And they're still used, but the and anybody who's interested in building modern criteria of, of of building a modern gargoyle will want to know. Obviously, they'll be keen to write down this figure. They'll go, "Thank God, Roshi Murphy is back because we missed how to put a modern gargoyle onto the front of your building. One point eight meters. You need to be so you know you'll have it's like putting a big spout. So instead of it going down in the pipe into the drainage." Yeah. And actually, in fairness, when they invented rainwater drainage, everyone, yahoo, we don't have to have water probably pouring over us on the street. (laughs) But um, it's 1.8 metres off the face of a building. So it pours out. Don't pour it into your neighbour's building. Don't pour it. You know, try and pour it into a decorative drain or ideally a storm drain out there. But they can be very crisp. Like there's a fellow called Le Corbusier who does brilliant ones. So you'll see these big spouts and running into big concrete um, bowls at the edge of you know further away from the building that becomes essentially a fountain so th- I, I'm completely fascinated I by this I can tell and who knew <laughs> <laughs> Larry of gargoyles when I think of a gargoyle my mind goes immediately to like Notre Dame yes. or to that scene in The Omen where <laughs> you know the church the yeah. spear yeah, comes yeah. and impales the, the well, priest they, of the thing and you've got these 
ugly kind the of frightening face. Yeah, the horrifics are part of that, but they were all you and they're the water spout is the gargoyle, which is less frightening, but they were all about taking well, unless even you're s- under it when <laughs> the rain comes down. <laughs> or, or handy to be under if you're you know in the medieval times when you were looking for a shower, let's all head to the church. But um the thing is that they were also about guarding evil spirits away. But yeah. I think in a time where we are talking about the environment so much, the longer the rainwater stays out of a drain. Okay, let's get this straight about this, guys. The longer your rainwater stays in the system around your garden, the better it is for the planet. Okay, so if you if you're not inclined towards gargoyles, there's also a thing called a water butt. Right. Okay. So this is the other thing that I think a lot of people are looking at now. Instead of all that beautiful rainwater going down into the gutters, you can get these big, tall, black-like barrels. You can get them for apartments, balconies, everywhere. And they are screw fixed onto the front face of the buildings and they will take the water and you can then decant it as you need. Right. So it's a way of contr- of, of storing your rainwater for use. Okay. So rainwater, I think, and the gargoyle and the rain chain, I think are all going to be making some sort of reintroduction into what we do in our houses because rain and water conservation is a huge no, thing. No, it absolutely is. Now, all um, morning, I have been asking people about barometers and sending in pictures and all that kind of thing. Our house, when I was growing up, always had a barometer in the hall. It was a mahogany piece with uh, a gold um, or a brass clock in the middle. And my grandfather was obsessed with it every single morning, checked it. Before he went to look out the window to see what the weather was like, he was checking <laughs> was the humidity and the pressure. I, do you know what? He was a, he was a, he was a Waterford man who came yeah. from farming stock yeah. and it seemed to be like he would tap it and he'd look at it and he'd tap it again. Is it working? Yeah. <laughs> and then he'd be able to tell you what the weather was like for the day. And yeah. he'd, he'd usually be right. Really? And I find now, like, okay, we're all using weather apps. And yeah. by the way, Met Aaron recently got a ton of complaints from people to say, your weather app is wrong. It's desperate. Yeah. Uh, and people were using a Scandinavian one, which they said was far more accurate this was for it. the Irish Very weather. Irish, isn't it? That we're, not, we're, we're now talking about not just the weather, the app. The What's app? your app? What app do you use? Yeah, and I suppose it is very difficult mm. in a country that has a million climates all in one yeah. day. Barometers. Did you have one? Talk to me a little bit. Well, about I suppose uh, my dad was in the army and my mum was a nurse, so we had thermometers a go go. And because he was in the army, they had brass fiddly bits. Is that uh, writer Ed O'Loughlin used to talk about our house that it was full of brass? Because my father used to like polish everything. Do you know what I mean? The military thing. We polish up, polish the brass. So we had a barometer. But then when we moved to the new bungalow. All things new and shiny. The barometer did not come with us. And I was very disappointed because I always thought, I always was intrigued by it. Like this barometer thing that people would look at and say, I don't think it's working. This barometer is definitely not working. They'd look out at the weather. Maybe the barometer was one of those things that just didn't work with the Irish weather. But barometers were part and parcel of the hall kind of accessories in the in the 70s in Ireland. Everybody right. had one. But they are there are modern versions. The barometer is not dead. And there is part of me that when I did the history of it, I was very, I was intrigued. There's a fellow who did an experiment called Evangelista Torticelli. Now, Ooh, just think, and um, also another fellow. And that was from the 1643, apparently. He did this big, massive experiment. And the thing is, right, what I loved about this, he was trying to measure air, the weight of air. Because everybody had said air weighed nothing. And he was like, I think it weighs something. And he did a little, little conversation with Galileo, as you do in the 17th century. And they said, air weighs something. So he set about doing experiments about the air. 
and again he had a funnel he put made an air pocket above the water and he needed 18 meters to test the pressure one point some huge amount of water in a tunnel to 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 show the pressure but he was also had to do them in secrecy because he was accused of sorcery and all sorts of things mm. but eventually he copped on that actually he only needed a small tube of mercury so he's like mm, I might use mercury instead smarter <laughs> yeah so he did a tube of mercury and you leave it open at the top and the air moves it according to the pressure okay. right so that's, that's where you get that that's where you get the but right. there are modern versions of it including a thing called a storm clock which is a beautiful and you really love these they come in little bird shapes and they're for desks so they might be blue and they turn they change into snowflakes or all sorts of different structures with the atmosphere as oh, well. I do like that. You do like, yeah. I knew you'd like that. Tiny yeah. little bluebird sitting on your desk and it changes according to the weather. So there's lots of other traditions and the barometer is still being produced in different forms okay. because there, there is various forms of this yeah. and including a beautiful one from um, Arne Jakobsen who would be this famous mm. Danish, speaking of the Danes, Arne Jakobsen was one of their best designers and he produced this beautiful round stainless steel one that is very, very kind of sought after by uh, architects. It's only 500 quid, no bother to you. <laughs> Well, you know what? If it's an heirloom and if it's something that's going to sit like a sculpture yeah. or a piece of, of furniture in your house, well, look, I, th- I think we're okay with that. And it possibly will beat the weather app. So when it comes to having the barometer as a decorative mm. item, mm. I love that idea. So it, it's that cross function. It's functional and it looks beautiful. Mm. And another thing which does exactly the same job is the weather vane. Because oh, yeah. they, I love those now because they sit on top of the roof they're what birds, flags, yeah, yeah. Uh, little arrows, and there's, I I can remember that scene from Mary Poppins. Do you know whether the weather vane goes whizzing around the yeah. place when she's due to arrive because you don't know what, what what wind she's coming in on? Are they still a thing? Um, I think there is still a thing in public buildings, whereas I think the barometer is what you'd have in your hall. But I think to a certain extent, um, everything because we've moved outdoors. The weather vane, the barometer, anything that's talking about the weather is back on the cards again. A bit like the gargoyle. But I weather vanes can be also incredibly useful for frightening away birds and keeping yes. them uh, away from your home. You know, those owls that you'll see. Away from the chimney. Yeah, really. where, they, yeah. Where, they, yeah. where they all congregate. Or if you've got birds flying into, particularly say with plate glass windows, mm. one of the big problems with the big thing of the, with the big plate glass window is birdies mm. so I mean I haven't got one myself Sinead um, but I would I absolutely love anything to do with wind or air like I'm very fond of chimes in the garden I have to say the hippie in me loves oh, I love that well, just a, we, we was all going so well yeah I know they are so wind chime at the menace. chimney and I mean who'd live beside me that's all you have to ask they're yourself. a menace do you think so I do because think 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 they're not my <laughs> chimes I don't want to hear that I don't want to be woken up I don't sleep well as it is what about wood chimes I don't care mm. I don't want them in your garden because I'm next to your garden and it drives me potty and I didn't choose them what about lights in the garden Sinead Lights are fine. Yeah, you see, I you know, my problem they with the nice and they're secure. But it, I have a thing about lights in the garden because of the birdies. I always think you're disturbing their sleep. So for me, I'm more chime. But I do love a night lit garden. But the thing is, it keeps the birds awake. Right, okay. light pollution, Sinead. So a little bit of chimes, you know. No. No. All right. Okay. We were doing fantastic work there. My back. What on you the expect? whole barometers yeah. and the weather vanes and yeah. all that kind of so thing. You, and then you, you bring would in the you chimes. Do you have a weather vane? No. 
No, no. They're for actually, public buildings, I they think. They are really. And I do think there is a thing about that slowing time down. You know, the apps, the phones, you know, everything seems to run on an app now. So I'm preparing for the day that we've Armageddon and there's no apps. So get oh, your sundial, right. get your barometer, <laughs> get your gargoyles out, guys. It's back to right. basics. Survivalist, right. Okay. <laughs> well, there's a weekend project for you now, folks. Now, because we have Roisin Murphy back, we also have the object of yes. design back. Yeah. What have you brought okay. us One today? of the things that took me out of hiding was I've been receiving, obviously, lots of, I get a lot of uh, inquiries and a lot of people about buildings as well, where they'll say, talk to, will you ask Sinead about a building? Will you ask Sinead? But this is an object that I kind of, okay. I absolutely love. So open that. This is This oh. kicks... A lot of um, things off for me, this. Let's have a look. And it's all wrapped very carefully, which immediately makes me nervous. Yeah, (laughs) and you can't buy it, so don't feel any pressure that if you break it. (laughs) Right. Yeah. Okay, now, so this is... Well, I'll, give you, I'll tell you what glass. it is, will I? Okay. Do, it, it's like, um, it's opaque glass in a funny shape. It is a potato. It is a glass it's potato. It's a potato. Yeah. And there oh, are right. uh, 1,845 of them made. So that's the hint. Famine. Famine, exactly. It's the Famine Museum. It's the Famine Museum. It was okay. a glass installation made by Paula Stokes. And it was done for the Famine Museum. Now, I have particular affection for this because, obviously, I worked on that project years and years ago. If oh, I haven't bored you? everybody. This yeah. is the one in Strokestown. It's in Strokestown. In, in it's called the 1845 Memento um, Mori installation by Paula Stokes. Um, I have seen pictures yeah. of that. They're piled, piled on top of each it, other. Tonight. And they're all the, these beautiful yeah. glass in the shape of yeah. a puckered potato. It is an yeah. extraordinary installation. I think it's the first time because a potato is a very hard thing to work with in terms of art. I think it doesn't lend itself no. to still life. I've done a still life, them yeah. very difficult to do. But this is also moving to Johnston, which I'm going to put a link on and give it to you for for tweeting out afterwards, Excellent. where the exhibition is now open to. But it's quite eerie because it's taking yes. you know it is an eerie and thing somber. in the Strokes and the Strokes and Family mm. Museum is an incredible museum. But that whole thing of the Irish dependence on the potato and yet it features very rarely in our public art you don't see potatoes they're not up there with the acorn they're not up there with the shamrock so I think what they've done here in fairness to them and I know she was assisted by the legendary Roisin de Butler and and all of that Mm. is making something everyday object into something extraordinary now the installation itself is for sale the glass um, potatoes aren't for sale but it is well worth a visit for all of us to recall that incredible dependence we had as a nation on the potato you know indeed that's a lovely object now I must say and um, it, it'd be well worth anybody going in and taking a look at that either online or in real life in when, real that, life. when yeah. that allows alright Roisin thank you so much uh, for coming back to us uh, and for being here today and bringing us all that thank you for leaving me back into the building I'm so <laughs> delighted now that is all we have time for this week and remember if you'd like to get involved in the show maybe you have a question for Roisin or something you'd like her to look at uh, researching you can of course get in touch with us at any time 53106 is the text line at 30 cent or you can email us at the home show at newstalk.com I'm on Twitter at Sinead underscore Ryan and Roisin is on Roisin Murphy architect on Instagram lovely and uh, she always puts up great pictures there and great content indeed so don't forget to check out the home show podcast on the news talk website which is powered by go loud as well thanks so much to my production team this week Gareth Mulhall JJ Clark and Stephen McLoon on sound have a fantastic warm sunny beautiful Beautiful weekend and we'll see you all next week.